The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Clean Coders and its employees. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Clean Coders podcast. I'm your host, Charles Maxwood, and today I am talking to Chris Powers. Chris, welcome back. Chuck, great to be back. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and you're the CTO of Think something, uh, Thinkful? <laughs> Close. It's uh, My role's changed a few times in the last 18 uh, months. Uh, you know, started out as VP of Engineering for uh, Thinkful, uh, which was in the kind of, uh, coding bootcamp space online. We were acquired back in the fall by Chegg. Chegg is probably the largest online education company uh, uh-huh. right now and has been seeing some really neat growth given the state of things, right? And so, yeah, now Director of Engineering in the Czech organization still focused on the okay. Thinkful product. Leveling up is important. I spend at least an hour every day learning ways I can improve my business or take a break and listen to a good book. If you're looking to level up, I recommend you start out with the 12-week year as a system to plan out where you want to end up and how to get the results you want. You can get it free by going to audibletrial.com slash code. That's audibletrial.com slash code very cool well i will avoid all the horrible dad puns that came up with the name check and <laughs> we'll just uh we'll, we'll dive right into our topic here and it was interesting because we initially you know you emailed me and said you wanted to talk about the unintuitive perceived correlation between code system quality and system performance and then we started talking about scaling and you know how clean code comes into that and mm-hmm. Anyway, there's a lot here, and I'm not really sure where to kind of dive in. It, it all yeah. feels like the deep end of the pool. So, well, let me uh, maybe I can kind of share a little bit of stories or just like some of the things I've yeah, been observing perfect. lately, right? As part of this acquisition over the last, you know, nine months, 12 months, there's been uh, a lot of growth in the company. So mm-hmm. it was only, oh, let's say 12 to 15 months ago that Thinkful was a little Series A company looking for that Series B round. And we were serving students. We were doing some good stuff. It was not high scale at all. And certainly when you are charging, oh, I don't know, let's say 10K uh, at that time to use the software, we didn't have that many users. (laughs) Right. Uh, we, We had just a particular business in which there was a very high lifetime value to our customers. Every customer was extremely important, but the overall throughput, it just wasn't that much. At the time, we also required like an admissions process before somebody even got to the software. And so by the time they did, they've already paid money up front and had an interview and talked to humans and this whole kind of school process to get access to the curriculum, right? Right. So I think it's interesting to to think back to the culture of the team at that time and what were the things that we were valuing at the time. And they are distinct from what we've been thinking about now. And it's been interesting to think about how the business, the code base, and the team culture have quickly shifted in the last, let's say, year as we have dramatically increased the number of folks who are in the system. We ungated the system uh, to folks to be able to try it out before they're actually paying for it, which is a pretty big change. And mm-hmm. suddenly that will you know, create the floodgates. It's, it's still no Google, it's still no Facebook, obviously, but you know, there's a lot <laughs> yeah, more well. 
traffic. Um, and, and certainly all of those prospective students, you know, could represent uh, substantial lifetime value to the business, right? And and obviously, from a, a mission perspective, it's incredibly important for us to make sure we're having a good first impression on these folks because they we want them to succeed in their studies and in their career pursuits. It's interesting to think about back then how I felt about a a bug and the severity of a bug and the meaning of some kind of a problem in the system. Because at that time, oftentimes these things would kind of generally go unnoticed, or maybe one student would be like, oh, this one thing was weird. And they would mention that to, you know, one of the, the members of the support staff, and then we, we get that fixed, right? At the end of the day, we had folks who, they, they weren't locked in, but certainly like, they weren't just going to leave like it was some kind of an e-commerce system where they had a bad system. They, they were kind of partners with us in their education. And so there was kind of a level of, of leeway that I think culturally we felt like we had. I don't think that was the best way for us to be thinking about this, just in case <laughs> if there's any question about that. But you could understand how those kinds right. of attitudes would, would show up, especially if there was a lot more focus around growing the product, expanding the capabilities, you know, things that were expansive rather than contracted. You could end up in those thought patterns. Um, and those thought patterns at the time were not that expensive. Well, fast forward. And in fact, I think the business can change at a faster rate than our cultures can change. Uh -huh. And so one of the things that I've I've been experiencing with our team is just that sometimes we find ourselves with some outdated ideas culturally that are no longer supporting the business that we're actually in, the business right. that we're actually driving right now, and the needs of our users or our students. And so it's interesting to see how quickly we we're able to make changes to the business, and yet it's actually the culture that lagged behind. And as I think about things like, uh, you know, clean code, I've been thinking about to what extent do you know some of the clean coder ideas are they are they solutions to to the problems kind of reactively where we see a problem then we apply the solution, or are they to some extent religion, a <laughs> a, a doctrine under which one follows without necessarily understanding the causality of it, right? I, I'm not necessarily applying these for to, to solve any particular problem. Perhaps I am instead, I, this is just how I do. <laughs> these are the yep. traditions by which I live my life. There were forces that got me into that religion to begin with, right? And I think one of the one of the things that I've heard over, let's say, the last 10 years, when I don't know if people talk about like the the whole software craftsmanship as much these days, I feel like they had its big boom around 2010 or so. Yep. And then uh, you don't hear as much about it. And I think part of that was the religiousness of those ideas. And right. for what it's worth, I largely agree with the vast majority of the ideas that they had. But it was difficult to kind of extract the particular ideas, which were super positive, and almost the religious nature by which they were talked about, which you could understand how people might feel like, well, should this be a little more contextual than the way that we're talking yeah. about it right now? And when I see this kind of growth, it honestly, it causes me to step back and, and rethink that a little bit. Because on one hand, I like solving the problems that are in front of me. If I don't have a problem in front of me, I'd rather not optimize for it. I'd rather not solve it, right? And yet, on the other hand, you know, the religion comes to be through experience. You know, it's like if you pray to this rock enough times and you see enough good things happen, you start to think that maybe this rock is onto something and you keep praying to, to the rock. Um, mm -hmm. And if you if you see practices that you are using and you see things seem to be going pretty well and you're avoiding pitfalls and you start to equate these 
together, then even if let's say there is not an immediate problem with we don't have enough tests in the code base, or we don't have a particular pane of too many bugs in this in the system, to what extent does the the religion or just the practice of of clean code help kind of gild the way, help to to pave the way to stay out of the problem in the first place right. versus having to react to the problems as they end up attacking us down down the line. And I think when the cost is low, when the cost of any problem is low, and, and like I said, a year or so ago in the company, you just be like, ah, you know, there, there's not that many problems. And when there is a problem, the cost is low. It's just not that big of a deal. Let's just right. focus on hyper growth or whatever. And then all of a sudden, the, the culture is slow to adapt to the change in the business where now those same exact mistakes, the literal exact things that I could have done a, a year ago versus now. <laughs> and now today it costs 20x, 100x more than it would have right. back then. I think it's human nature in a lot of ways, though, to not not take it as seriously until the cost is higher, even though the cost to fix it earlier would have been lower. and the cost to you was also lower, you know, when it came up. And so, I mean, I, yeah, I, I like some of the ideas around, am I doing this because it's going to save me pain down the line or am I doing this just because it, I was told to do it. Mm -hmm. And then the flip side of some of these things are going to come back around and make me regret not doing them at right. some point. And some of them aren't. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think one of the things that um, in the, the clean code and the browser videos um, I think it was the open close principle video where mm -hmm. I was exploring like open close, incredibly useful idea, but boy, can you abuse it <laughs> or, or oh, can it, you can overuse it. You could set yourself up for plug-in architectures a la the uh, open close principle throughout the entire right. code base. It does beg the question, how often does that bear fruit? How often does that actually help you <laughs> down the line? Or were you kind of prematurely optimizing for particular patterns that perhaps never needed to be used. And we mm -hmm. actually added a lot of abstraction that perhaps uh, was net negative just because it was more, you know, more that you had to mentally process as you were working through the code base. And I think that when it comes to when it comes to object-oriented programming in particular, you know, it seems like you know the, the folks who are really on the, the functional bandwagon and appreciate those things, one of the big arguments that they have is just that object orientation is creating like it's creating too many structures that you have to keep track of which a i think can happen and i think usually when that happens it's because some of these patterns like open closed uh may be used prematurely and we're perhaps mm -hmm. defining formal interfaces in places where maybe a value would have been fine at least for right. now <laughs> you know but then i think it also like i also feel like that uh, criticism kind of misses the fact that object orientation allows you to keep fewer of the uh, just fewer objects in your head at a time as you're trying to understand the system, right? And the the ability to encapsulate these ideas into objects I find to be uh, in, incredibly useful. I know there's a one of the clean code authors, Mark. What's Mark's last name? He he did this uh, series about basically about this. I mean, he started uh -huh. the whole series just with the idea that you can keep seven ideas in your head at a time. Right. Now let's apply that to code. <laughs> and let's think about how many things we're trying to keep in our head that is probably greater than seven. And it's no wonder that all of a sudden it's very difficult for us to uh, keep focused uh, and, right. and to be able to quickly understand what's happening. And so it's like, yeah. So I, I think to 
to kind of bring that back though, the you know we we see the the pain and trying to understand like the the cost now, the cost later, right? And of course, the cost later is always speculative. Um, I think there is something to be said for having a team level understanding of what is our investment in the future. And mm-hmm. I don't know if there's a right answer, but I think having an answer is right. Okay. What do you take into consideration there then, right? You know, what? Yeah, I think there is an answer. Yeah, it may not be the same for everybody. But yeah, which dials are we looking at then for that? So I think the dials are, you know, so there, to a large extent, there's risk and reward, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's how much, where do you want to put the risk? and Where do you want to get the reward? Um, do you want it kind of like nearer term? Do you want to just, you know, see it longer term? Of course, longer term, it may never actually show up. Right. Um, and so I think it's, it's, it's that idea of which we, we can't tell what the right answer is going to be. As we get further down the road, we get better glimpses at it. We mm-hmm. get more information to work with and the ability to, you know, preferably if this is something that we think of as a hypothesis rather than a very you know, written in stone idea of how the team is going to approach this, it certainly can help. You know, one thing I was thinking about, uh, so I drive, <laughs> I drive an old car. I've got this 2005 Corolla p- hunk of junk. And the other day <laughs> it, it turned into a dragster. It just all of a sudden, like some, I'm like, oh, the muffler shot or something. Sounds yeah. awful. I take it over to uh, to the place to get repaired, and I look under it. I can see, oh, well, the exhaust pipe is is in two pieces. This is clearly a problem. Yeah, not and normal. I'm like, hey, yeah, and I ask him, hey, can you guys patch this up for me? And they tell me no. I'm like, we we won't patch that up for you. I'm like, what? And they're like, well, all we will do is we will replace the entire exhaust line for you, uh, but we won't <laughs> do a patch. And at first, I'm just like, you you money grabbers, right? Like, what are these guys doing? Yeah. So, of course, I do what I, of course, I would do, feeling like I'm a mildly handy person, you know, who between Amazon and YouTube can do all things. And so I order some patch kit on Amazon, watch YouTube video, get under my car, take care of that. And I fix the problem for a month or so <laughs> yeah and all of a sudden uh it started to sound like a dragster again because it actually broke a few inches down from where i had done the patch i was like well oh interesting shoot. yeah because turns out it, it you know it, it wasn't just the fact that there was this one weak spot in the pipe the pipe's 15 years old the thing shot uh yeah. and so to some extent i thought well here's the <laughs> here's this mechanic who is making an opinionated judgment but they're basically saying like we can't actually serve you well by patching this. We know this is what you're asking for, and we know that this will like get you by for now, but you will not be happy with this because you'll end up coming back to us in two months and complaining about the fact that this patch didn't hold. And of course it didn't hold, right? Like we want to to push you to make this long-term better decision. Now, is the long-term decision actually the best? I don't know. I mean, my car is worth a whopping few hundred dollars, probably. So <laughs> to some extent, a series of patches uh, may make sense in my situation, right? But I'll tell yeah. you what, I'm not making money off of my car. Imagine a situation where I was, I was Uber driving, or I was renting my car out, right? Suddenly, the reliability of that thing would take on a whole new meaning. Mm-hmm. And I start thinking, well, what if I, <laughs> what if I actually had a small business of this, I had a, a, a fleet of 10 cars, 20 cars, 100 cars, right? How would that decision change, right? And it would change somewhere along the way, somewhere between me having my one crappy car and having a fleet of 100 cars, I would realize that the business had changed, the culture has to change. And now 
uh, I have to make very different strategic decisions about where I'm going to invest my money, where I'm going to invest my time. Yeah, that makes sense. I was just thinking about, I just have duct tape melting off of my exhaust because you know, nice. your exhaust system gets hot <laughs> and it doesn't stand up to that well. The duct tape wouldn't, but yeah. Not so much, not so much, yeah. No, um, that makes sense. So do you feel like there are gradations to this then? You know, because I mean, you gave us some pretty clear delineations with the car example. Does this apply to coding systems or business systems then, right? Where the business is now making or, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars or tens of millions of dollars or, you know, the the user tolerances for issues like this are, I mean, your your tolerance for it, if you fixed it was relatively high, right? But your user's tolerance may not be that high, you know, and and the lifetime value. So yeah, so how do you how do you start to make that determination? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's actually a couple things to consider. Part of it is just the code. But another part of it is that I'm realizing in many organizations I've been part of, there's always been some kind of a human support layer around the system itself that right. was designed in order to at least be able to solve certain sets of system problems using humans. Mm-hmm. So whether that was uh, customer support, who was, you know, fielding uh, problems from customers, and perhaps they had like, you have that level two customer support, where they have access to the database, or they have access to some admin tooling that allows them to actually go in, make some data changes to the system. And these are extremely useful things. Uh, they give mm-hmm. us as an engineering team, a little bit of grace to know that we are able to solve certain kinds of problems through existing human structures that we have to give us perhaps time to then create a uh, a fully automated or, you know, code driven solution, which is neat. I've also seen in every organization that ultimately, like, get overused and abused. Again, going back to the the culture of how do we think about severity? And how do we think about uh, how quickly we have to respond to something or how bad something is? Um, there's always like this this layer of things that it's not such a bad bug that we have to drop everything and, and deal with it. And it's it's somebody is paying the cost, but maybe they're in customer service or maybe they're mm-hmm. you know level two support. And we could just go pushing harder on that product initiative, you know, to get that next feature out and instead of kind of going back and dealing with this because it kind of feels like a solved problem. And in that moment, it is a solved problem. Now double your traffic, triple your traffic, triple your users, right? And uh, boy, you will see that customer service department fall apart. Absolutely. I'm having flashbacks. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So my first job out of college, um, I ran a support department for the company I worked for. I was Mm -hmm. actually hired as the number two support guy. And then the number one guy moved off. And then I wound up hiring a bunch of people to work under me to get the, all that stuff done, right? At one point, I basically put together, because uh, you know we tracked all of our calls, all of our emails, everything, put together a PowerPoint presentation, took it to my boss and said, look, this is the rate we're growing at. This is our error rate. Mm-hmm. At the rate we're going by the end of the year, if you want to maintain the level of service, which you're already telling me isn't good enough, we're going to have to double our staff. Or you can get the programmers to fix these three things. Yeah. Yeah. And I got told no on both. And that's another story. But yeah, <laughs> you but you all were the sacrificial lambs. Huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> unfortunate. Very unfortunate. Yeah. But but yeah, but those are those are the things that you're thinking about, right? Is yeah, 
at what point does it become unworkable one way or the other? And how far can we push it before we get there? And then, yeah, what does our culture say about that, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that the, I mean, this is tricky. And I think every every situation is unique to some extent, just because there's different business forces and different leaders and things like that. But I think a few things are consistent. And one is that in any system, from the, the outsider's perspective, whoever the outsider is, the performance of the system generally looks Boolean. It's working or it's not working. Right. And we know that behind the scenes, that's still to some extent sometimes true. But usually we just know that there is a lot of gray. And it's just that sometimes a bunch of gray piles up in order to create an outage. And sometimes the gray stuff doesn't quite pile up to do that. We know that in complex systems, usually they fail for complex reasons. Mm -hmm. There's no one thing, but it's the four things added together that ends up bringing something down. And so it's... Uh, you know, I, I I feel like it's it's almost like coronavirus as well as we're seeing this. We're seeing right now the rates are going up, up, up as we get out of the summer and get into the fall. And it's still so un unintuitive for people because it just it seems like everything is fine until all of a sudden it's not fine. And all of a sudden you're sick or at least someone that you love is sick. But up until that point, you didn't know anybody who was sick and everything was fine until all of a sudden it wasn't fine. And there was no gradual acceleration, perhaps within your circle or your, you know, mm -hmm. within your observable universe outside of the news in order to see that. And I think that with our systems, it's a very similar thing where the outsider perspective or the stakeholder perspective is that it's working until suddenly it doesn't work anymore. Uh, and whether that was because over that time, your customer service team was getting loaded, 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 overloaded, and suddenly it stops right. working. Or because our our systems, either the maybe it was the hardware scaling issue, but even maybe it was just the fact that our system was getting harder to understand. There were more and more edge cases. There are more and more conditional loops and logic and things that were making it more difficult to reason about the system until somebody with the best of intent makes a change to the system, not being able to reason about it, and it blows things up. And suddenly we went right. from everything was fine to everything was not fine. And I don't know how we, <laughs> it's very difficult, I think, in order to really help clarify that. Because when, when somebody asks me, for example, you know, well, what's, what's the risk to the business if such and such, if we don't invest in this initiative to improve the system or shore up the code base? And it's like, oh, right. well, probably one of two things is going to happen. You're not going to see any change at all and it'll be fine. Or the entire thing's going to go down and we're going to lose a huge amount of money. <laughs> they're like, well, that that's crazy. That's like either nothing changes or the, the business explodes. That seems unreasonable, despite yeah. the fact that honestly, it is kind of true. It is kind of true yeah. that those are the, you know, some potential outcomes. And so it's like, we need to work with our stakeholders in order to develop some way of talking about the nuance of it, which is hard. You know, I mean, there's... Yeah. There's a lot of nuance in uh, just in business as a whole, and we usually try to abstract over it so that we can make concrete, clear decisions. And I've seen some organizations do this bluntly by doing things like X percent of engineers' time goes into infrastructure or, or refactoring uh -huh. or something like that. And it's just like, good news, it was a shared understanding. Everybody could at least like look at that and understand and be like, okay, I guess that's our that's what our appetite is going to be for investing in that. And at least it's shared and we can talk about that. Usually it ends up more being we don't get there. 
Uh, we we end up yeah. just having nebulous at best conversations with our stakeholders where engineers want to invest here, here, and there, and other folks just don't really get it. And to their, uh, you know, I think we also have to admit that sometimes we don't do an awesome job of helping to clarify what is at stake or what is involved. You know, uh, it's certainly a two-way street there. Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? I mean, let's face it. The only way you're going to know that is by actually running it on production. So go figure it out, right? You run it on production, but you need something plugged in so that you can find out where those issues are, where it's slowing down, where it's having bugs. You just you need something like that there. And Raygun is awesome at this. They, they just added the performance monitoring, which is really slick, and it works like a breeze. I, I just, I love it. I love it. It's like, it's like you get the ray gun and you zap the bugs. It's anyway, definitely go check it out. It's going to save you a ton of time, a ton of money, a ton of sanity. I mean, let, let's face it, grepping through logs is no fun. And having people not able to tell you that it's too slow because they got sidetracked into Twitter is also not fun. So go check out Raygun. They are definitely going to help you out. There are thousands of customer-centric, customer-focused software companies who use Raygun every day to deliver great experiences for their customers. And if you go to Raygun and use our link, you can get a 14-day free trial. So you can go check that out at cleancoderspodcast.com slash Raygun. Well, and it's interesting too, because we talk about the nuance, right? And we were talking, you used the coronavirus as an example, and we were talking before the show, and I mentioned that in Utah, because that's where I live, and so I'm watching the numbers here, right? And there was some group that pulled the numbers together in Utah, and when you go in and you get tested for coronavirus, they ask you if you know somebody, right, if you were in contact with somebody that had it. And like, I think it's like 87 or 88% of people that go in and get tested, say yes, right? So they, mm. they came in contact with a neighbor, a friend, a family member, somebody that had it, and then they test positive for it. And so they we know that they probably got it from somebody they know. And then the other 12%, you know, are people that, you know, either didn't realize that somebody they know had it, or they picked it up at the store or the restaurant or mm. the theater or wherever they went, right? And so, you know, you start looking at that and it's like, okay, well, so we're talking about this, these, these number of cases and what preventative measures could they have taken and things like that. But then if you're looking at the overall system, you know, then you're trying to make a nuanced call as to how much it really tips the scales. And it's hard. It's hard to know that. But at the same time, it may just be the thing that spreads just enough of it to bring the system down, like you're saying, or it may not matter. And, and it's hard to know those things about these complex systems that we've pulled together in our society. If you look at it, all of us as separate actors, it is complex, very complex. And so, yeah, just, just knowing, okay, so at what point does it really make sense, right, to, to start shutting down restaurants or start doing these other things? Or does it make sense to maybe get a little more aggressive about encourage pe encouraging people not to get together in large groups? with people they actually know, or any of these other things. And yeah, some of these measures you can mandate, right? And you're like, we're, we're going to encourage these things, or we're going to just shut some of these things down. Mm -hmm. And some of them are really hard to control for, right? Like, you know, if, if I have, I, I'm the oldest of 10 kids. So nope. if I have my, my entire family over here, right, that's a lot of people. And 
besides, you know, having eight, 10 cars parked out front, nobody's going to know, right? And so you you may not even see it coming and we put together a big super spreader event. And so just using that analogy, you just, th- there's so much going on and you just, you just can't know that based on a lot of these things. And sometimes you won't even see it coming. Yeah, well, and what ends up happening then, right? Like you, we we see some of the, some of the folks uh, who are loud in the coronavirus conversations, where you have folks who are like, "Oh my gosh, wear your damn mask." And you have other folks who are like, "Screw the mask." Yeah, <laughs> you it's can't a great make conversation. Me wear a mask. Really, really yeah. coherent, right? But I think the, the the idea of well, in Illinois, like I said, they're about to shut down a bunch of restaurants again, right? Mm-hmm. And I could understand uh, people. Who you know uh, are have <laughs> they all the best intentions and certainly like are, are just like is this government overreach? That's a reasonable question. Yeah. Or is this an overreaction because it, you know it is that actually getting at the root of the problem or is that getting at ten right. percent of the problem but we're causing fifty percent of the pain from it? Something like uh-huh. that, right? And those are all very reasonable questions. But at some point, somebody's kind of just got to make a call. The government's yes. just kind of got to make a call because. You probably need to do something. Nothing is probably not what we can do. Uh, and you, you got to make a call. And then hopefully lay out the framework for how helping people understand how future decisions are being made, right? Yes. That always helps. And so I think that we, oftentimes we have structures in our engineering organizations that do help this, right? So when you've got mm-hmm. incident reports or, or retrospectives or things like this, that the intent of them is to help a cross-functional team of people understand what are the pieces that came together in a complex way to cause some kind of complex outage situation or, or problem? And how can we look at the systematic components of that without you know, just pointing at people and understand how could we how can we improve upon that in the next time? You know, you certainly hope that those are opportunities for everybody, no matter which hat they wear, to get a better understanding of just how engineering works how product works, yep. what the inputs to a situation looked like, because it turns out it wasn't as simple as just somebody pushed the wrong button. It's, I hope, I hope it's not that simple. <laughs> <laughs> I've been in that situation. It's no fun either. <laughs> well, yes, yeah, every now and then. Um, yeah, for sure. it happens. Um, but there's, yeah, and I think it at least helps folks then understand, all right, we we don't know perfectly how to move forward from from x or y but we Mm -hmm. feel like we have enough shared understanding to at least again put out that hypothesis for we think that by closing down the restaurants it's going to help we think that by putting this in our cicd pipeline or by Mm -hmm. uh requiring a certain level of testing or whatever this might be we think it'll help and it's a it's an act of faith it's a little yep. bit of religion in these situations because you only know in hindsight if that was actually a good idea. But we also have an understanding that there are generally best practices and there are generally uh, things that have worked well in other environments that you could imagine would work pretty well in our environment as well because they're not usually that different in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, there are two or three things I want to point out here. One is that, you know, we... we finally came to some kind of technical solution, right? CICD, blah, blah, blah. But the way we got there, and this is the part that's so fascinating about software, is that there was all the people stuff in between, right? All the all the management, the communication, and the work that you had to do to come up with the solution that you thought would solve the problem. And sometimes it's still not even clear if that was the actual cause or if it just highlighted something else 
that we didn't even consider, even as we fixed it, would solve the problem. And, but but again, you know, just that level of experimentation. And then the other thing is, as you pointed out, well, at least we know that solved the problem. A lot of times that's true, but not always, right? You know, similarly, again, using the coronaviruses as a, you know, as a talking point on that, it's just, you know, we know people have had it if they get tested, but we're not actually going to know if we hit herd immunity. So we may try something new, and then it turns out that just enough people have had it or gotten the vaccine or whatever to where it just doesn't spread as much. And sometimes there are kind of these black box areas where just for whatever reason, we just kept trying and eventually it went away and we don't know if that was on its own or not. And that's hard too. But I think the critical piece of this is, is that we're discussing it, we're talking about it, we're trying to measure it, we're trying to understand it and figure it out. And then we can take the steps to hopefully alleviate whatever problem there is. Attribution is difficult. Always, in all things, attribution is difficult. You know, I, I think that the go, going back to, uh, you know, the, the religion idea, but really, it's just more what are the uh, what are the things that we use to define the way that we do our work? You know, what, what are the, the firmer ideas that aren't necessarily hypotheses so much as uh, these are the the foundational agreements that we as uh, developers or technical staff have with each other around how mm -hmm. we go about doing this work. Resiliency, really all the aliencies, I'll talk about resiliency. Resiliency is one of these things that, uh, you know, you never have the product manager be like, all right, and uh, hey, I'd like to put resiliency uh, in the, the sprint. <laughs> you know, and yet they, it never comes up as this this first class idea, right? And yet, show me not someone you in don't the business. Have well, exactly. Show me someone in the business who does not quietly expect that to yes. just be a thing, right? To just be a thing. They they just expect it, and understandably so. Yep. But it would be ridiculous to expect anything else. And so, how do we take the silent and make it so it's not silent anymore? How do we take some of those things, and rather than thinking about uh, resiliency? Uh, or or efficiency or scalability or any of these abilities as a sunk cost or a side effect or something along those lines how do we make those things first class ideas that we talk about you know and first class things that that engineering uh can help to to communicate that hey we we can agree upon the fact that we actually all are on the same page these things are important and when these things disappear mm -hmm. bad things happen right and even if we're in small scale, like my company was a year ago, where frankly, some of the resiliency, uh, you know, it didn't cost too much to bounce back from it. That will change faster than our culture will. And that yep. might even change faster than our, our processes and policies do. And so when it comes to those kind of things, we benefit from taking a harder stance around that. Now, there's still a lot of gaps to fill in. How, you know, what does it look like to be regularly investing in those things? And and there's right. negotiation and there's hypotheses and all of that. But waving that banner, I think that's where the conversation starts, right? The conversation starts when somebody gets uncomfortable that we're actually pushing, you know, willing to deprioritize something for the sake of resiliency. And then we right. get to have the conversation about why that's actually such a good idea and so important for us to do. Because at the end of the day, you all assume resiliency is happening and you are all making business decisions, assuming that we can accelerate or turn 
or make changes at the business layer that will be supported by a resilient engineering organization. The, you know, the other thing that comes to mind with this is like architecture, because as we think about the, the way that these systems and the businesses uh, that they power changes over time, it does beg the question of emergent design versus like bigger architectural ideas and how, how should those be fitting together? You know, certainly I've always been one to, to think primarily from an emergent design perspective, but it does beg the question <laughs> when it emerges, when the design does pop out of nowhere uh, and we make these decisions, do we get fractalization? Do we get cohesion? Mm -hmm. Do, do we get everybody going in different directions or, you know, do we, do we get some kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, clarity over time rather than fuzziness over time? Do we get facts? Do we get a series of like well understood behaviors or attributes of the system? Or do we get myths <laughs> over time, right. legends lost to past ages? And I yeah. think that the that ends up probably being more important than any particular system that we had in place or any particular architectural idea that we had in place. Because we can still, if we're emerging our design in a way that is still thoughtful and concentric, that is, is kind of pulling things together, um, or at least perhaps experimenting with things on the fringe, knowing that we will bring it back into the fold, you know, if it works, then it gives us the ability to make larger architectural decisions along the way. It's when those experiments never get brought into trunk. It's when like we never reconcile the differences between this thing and that thing. And they just, we have two different ideas that are almost the same thing, but not quite the same thing. And that, <laughs> that never, that never changes. And then our, our users go up by 10 X, by hundred X, by thousand X. And then we really, that, then I think that's when we start being like, Oh, if only we'd thought about the user service or only we'd thought about these larger mm -hmm. architectural items, but it's like, well, would we have started there though? Would we have started yeah. the larger architectural ideas? I don't think so. I think we would have started at just a better understanding of what the system was doing, pulling that together, and then seeing how that needed to grow based on what we saw coming down the pipe. Now, one other thing that I'm wondering about here is, is this something that applies to every application? Because some applications are like internal apps for a small group in the company that, you know, you you'd kind of do some of this stuff but at the end of the day, it's never going to have to scale the way that you're talking about. So does it matter as much there? Well, but again, I think the, well, and again, like this, the word scaling, I think is is tricky because it's like, okay, well, scaling from a from an abstraction standpoint versus scaling from a hardware stand, standpoint. Right. Because right. I do think that the abstraction stuff, I think that happens all the time. It and I, even in small systems, right? And again, like I, I think about what we're doing at Thinkful and it's, um, you know, the, the systems that we have, there's a lot of, there's a lot of new ideas that have been added to them over the last year. All of a sudden we started letting people who weren't actually students start using the student experience. That was a new idea. We started mm -hmm. like trying to create different ways that people could, uh, could enroll and could come in and, uh, and, and different kinds of partnerships. And all of a sudden, like we had these multiplicative fractalizations happening, not just in the software, but even in the way that we thought about it as a business. Like you'd have business people who were like, had to stop and think mm -hmm. for a second because they're like, wait, how many different cases <laughs> are impacted by a change? We're like, oh, actually there's a bunch of them. And so the, the battleground ends up being the code, but that's not where the battle necessarily started, right? It, it started in other places. And I think that we, 
as we have fast growing organizations, as they tend to be in tech, uh, we have folks who are steering the ship who just have, again, one of these innate unspoken assumptions that the system that we have in place, A, does what we think it does, and B, can be changed fairly readily and fairly quickly in a in some kind of an incremental fashion, but that's that's not always going to be going to be true, or there's going to be a lot of engineering that has to be involved in order to make that true. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. I'm trying to think of just any conclusions or actionable things that people could do here because we're kind of getting toward the end of our time so that people can walk away and go, okay, so I've got this context out here. Yeah, now what do I do with this? Yeah, I think the, you know, some of the things that are sticking out to me from this conversation is we need to continue doing a better job of making the invisible visible. This is actually something that uh, I've talked a lot to a guy named Todd Webb he has a, a company called Resilient, uh, a consultancy that is specifically focused around the idea of, of resilience, and which largely focuses on the idea of how do we convince stakeholders that resilience is the thing that they should be thinking about and focusing on, or at least acknowledging and prioritizing. Right. And uh, and so I'm kind of stealing some of his ideas as he was saying, like make the make the invisible visible for them, and try to try to help them see the kind of causality that uh, that we understand as engineers. And there's kind of a fine line in terms of like how, you know, how deep to go in, like how much to hand wave and whatnot. But it is a worthwhile pursuit because we're doing a disservice to our peers outside of engineering if we're not doing our best to help them understand the kinds of risks that really do exist. Uh, if it's going right. to be a surprise to them when suddenly our resiliency goes way down and and we're stuck uh, in a way that they were making business plans with the full faith and assumption that we wouldn't get stuck in that way. Right. They, you know, ultimately resiliency isn't just an engineering benefit, it is a, a business benefit. Mm -hmm. And and so we can be can be talking about that. I think the other thing is that the, you know, the, the idea of, of culture sometimes being slower to change than the business itself or than the code itself. And I think that we have some structures when it comes to to retrospectives and when it comes to um, opportunities to kind of take a step back and feel like the dissonance between how we're thinking about things versus what we're seeing at the business layer and, and the costs, right? I think that it does really help uh, engineers to understand the finances of the business, to really understand what are the metrics at play because you'll see changes in those numbers that <laughs> might seem shocking to an engineer, right? If there's a big marketing push, if there's a growth push, if like strategically the business is doing something different than what it has done historically. And sometimes I find the starkness of numbers like that is a little bit of a wake-up call. You know, we had a we had a, an incident report where there was a bug that ended up costing a, a good chunk of change a larger chunk of change, frankly, than issues that had happened in the past. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it wasn't about beating anybody over the, the head with a number, but it, it was a little jarring just be like, ooh, like that, that, yeah. that is what happened. That, ooh, that, that is a bigger problem than I guess I would have thought could have happened from what seemed like kind of a, not that big of a deal of a bug. 
And right. now all of a sudden you had a whole group of people who started to recalibrate, started to recalibrate and rethink about what kind of a risk I could put into the system that could then uh, translate into poor student experience for us or money lost or, or whatever that might be. And the more that we're able to stay calibrated to the business and like, and, you know, perhaps it's the financials or it's the CSAT scores or whatever those metrics are that, uh, that someone's organization cares about, the closer that we can stay to that, the better we can align to that and understand the role that we do as engineers play in that. And I think that that's hopefully going to help us stay a little more limber and flexible in how we think about these things so that our culture stays current and our culture doesn't end up just being stuck in, in the past in a way that we're going to make bad decisions. Yeah, it makes sense. But I don't think you get there without, yeah, having a lot of conversations, uh, really thinking about some of that stuff. And one thing that I've seen, too, is that a lot of businesses are not willing to be open about some of these business concerns that you're talking about here. And so, you mm. know, with the programmers, because they don't need to know. But yeah, giving them that context really helps them understand Oh, I see. So we make a lot of our money from this, or we, you know, our churn rate goes up whenever these kinds of things happen. So yeah, then we can make sure that we're resilient to those things so they don't happen or don't happen as often. Yep. It would be foolish of us to think that everything that we do, every piece of code that we touch is all equal, because let's just acknowledge it. It's so not true, right? But it would also be foolish of us to have an outdated cache <laughs> of our understanding yeah. around that. Because these things can change. And especially yeah. like we, we tend to be in fast moving organizations that maybe are trying to find market, uh, their, their market and are trying a lot of different pivots or whatever. And these things can change faster than the culture does. Yep. Well, I think that's a good place to stop. If people want to discuss this more with you, is there a good place to, I don't know, hit you on Twitter or something? Sure. Uh, Chris J. Powers on Twitter. Uh, ChrisJPowers.com uh, has various resources and uh, contact info. Uh, yeah, love to chat with anybody. Awesome. All right, Chris. Well, this was a lot of fun. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me back on. Really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. All right, folks, uh, we'll wrap it up here. Until next time, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more.